Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, March 24th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before I start, I'd like to mention that Randy Aiken, our good friend in Louisiana, has passed away this morning. Randy was, um, for some time, a regular on our Wednesday night Bible studies with our friend Don Brown and Fulton Jones and and the rest of the people down there in Louisiana. So Randy will be missed. Prayerfully, he is with Yahweh. And that's our expectation, right? Surely he is. Tonight we are going to present part, part three of our presentation or commentary on the epistle to Titus. This is subtitled, The Cleanliness of God. As we have already discussed at length in the opening segments of our presentation of Paul's epistle to Titus, when the apostle arrived in the Troad, he must have been informed that Titus was in Crete and that there were some problems there among the assemblies. So in the opening verses of chapter 1 of this epistle, we had observed that we, we had observed where Paul addressed Titus as a true member of his race, according to the common belief, an authentic child of God, according to the common belief. We interpret that statement to mean that perceptibly, even though he was a Greek by race, Titus was of the race of the ancient Israelites, and therefore should be accepted as such. Then, after reminding Titus of why he had been, or why he was in the past, sent to Crete in the first place, in order to organize the Christian assemblies there, Paul advised him to ensure that elders, which are the overseers or bishops of each assembly, were established, and that the offices be filled by men who had endeavored to maintain a virtuous way of life. The foremost of the examples of virtue which Paul gave was that they were to have been the husbands of one wife, and that they had children without the possibility that they themselves could be accused of disobedience. We also perceive this to mean that men who would be leaders of Christian assemblies should have experience raising families of their own, that they should be committed to those families, and that their children in turn must also be true members or authentic members of the race, since otherwise the men would be chargeable. They would be fornicators. Making these admonitions to Titus, Paul advised him that the Cretans are always liars, evidently quoting the Cretan poet Epimenides. Since Epimenides was a Cretan, modern commentators interpret the statement paradoxically. But we have asserted that Paul and other early Christian writers did not interpret it in that manner. Rather, they accepted it at face value. The early 2nd century Greek writer Plutarch also accepted the statement of Epimenides as being true, 
and it seems to have been a common observation, as he even used the term kratismos, or Cretan behavior, to describe the act of lying. Paul himself had said of the saying that, of the saying of Epimenides, that this testimony is true, for which cause you must censure them relentlessly, that they would be sound in the faith, not giving heed to myths of Judaism and injunctions of men turning themselves away from the truth. When we give heed to myths and fables and injunctions of men, we're turned away from the truth of God. So Paul seems to be using the line from Epimenides as a rhetorical device in order to warn Titus of how important it is that he makes certain that the most pious and virtuous men among the Christians in Crete were given the responsibility of supervising each assembly, men who exhibited piety in the conduct of their lives, and not merely men who professed piety with their lips. By myths of Judaism, Paul certainly was not referring to the Old Testament scriptures, which he himself had so frequently quoted in reference to history and the necessity to keep the law and the promises and the prophecies of Yahweh God. Rather, Paul was referring to everything which the Judeans, whether they were Israelites or Edomites, had added in addition to the scripture, things which Yahweh God did not command, among these things were the laws and rituals that Christ had called, or I should call them ordinances and rituals, that Christ had called the traditions of the elders, which he described as invalidating the law of God. So here Paul is once again addressing the lies of the Judaizers. These traditions of the elders added many injunctions to the law requiring men to do things that went far beyond or that were often contrary to the commandments of Yahweh. They are a sort of proto-Talmud, an early oral version of the book of the Jews which exists as a disputation of both God and virtue. One of these traditions was baptism. There were specific reasons why John the Baptist was baptizing. But the rulers of Judea recognized the baptism of John and were curious to inquire where his authority came from because they themselves had codified the practice into their own rituals and traditions for their own purposes. Jewish synagogues to this very day have what they call a mikvah, which is a bath in which certain Jewish ritual purifications are performed. In English, it would be called a baptismal fount. In the laws of Yahweh, only the priests were required to be ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed for particular reasons. Aside from that, except for 
the required bathing when people get sick or when they're exposed to something that they shouldn't be exposed to. Aside from that, there is nothing in the law concerning the ceremonial baptizing of people. Here is a citation and some comments which we first made in an article titled Baptism in What? and actually have Clifton Emmerheiser to thank for finding it. And we wrote this perhaps a dozen years ago. It is observed that it is observed that Matthew 23:15 that the Pharisees were proselytizing or converting all sorts of people into Judaism. It seems that after the absorption of the Edomites into Judea, recorded by Josephus and Strabo, and explained by Paul in Romans chapters 9 through 11, after that, anything became possible. Baptism, not the cleansing of one who was already an Israelite, but rather seen as the mystical metamorphosis of one who was not was an important part of such proselytizing. It still is in Jewish synagogues to this day. John Lightfoot, the 17th century cleric, in volume 2 on pages 55 to 63, in a commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica, and this was written in the 17th century, John Lightfoot explains the details of this proselytizing. And he says that whensoever any heathen will betake himself and be joined to the covenant of Israel and take the yoke of the law upon him, voluntary circumcision, baptism, and oblation are required. And we have to understand that Lightfoot is speaking from the Jewish Old Testament perspective. The Jews really don't have the covenant of Israel. And he continues and he says that if an Israelite take a Gentile child or find a Gentile infant and baptizes him in the name of a proselyte, behold, he is a proselyte. And Lightfoot says that first you see baptism inseparably joined to the circumcision of proselytes and it still is to this day. Secondly, observing from these things which have been spoken, how very known and frequent the use of baptism was among the Jews, the reason appears very easy why the Sanhedrin, by their messengers, inquire not of John concerning the reason of baptism, but concerning the authority of the baptizer. Not what baptism meant, but from where he had a license to baptize, which is evident from John chapter 1. And John Lightfoot goes on to explain that once a proselyte was baptized, he was considered an Israelite in all respects. The same attitude that all of the so-called churches have today, taking anyone at all in off the streets and baptizing them as Christians. How is that not Jewish? How is that not Judaism? Yet it is evident that even John the Baptist did no such thing. He wouldn't even baptize certain people whom he considered to be vipers. And that's the end of our quotation of our own paper, which we 
what, which I kind of elaborated on. Now it is important, at least a little bit, now it is important to try to understand this from a first century perspective. If one is a Judaizer among the Christians back in the days of Paul, who formerly believed that baptism and circumcision were necessary to come into the communion of God, in the Old Testament, as it was being practiced by the Judeans at that time, then it is only natural that since baptism and circumcision were inextricably linked in that manner, that such a Judaizer would also insist that anyone coming into the communion of God in Christ would have to undergo the same rituals. When Paul took Titus to Jerusalem, Sometime around 52 AD, we read in Galatians chapter 2 that neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. However, there is no mention of baptism there. But if we look into the traditional procedure for conversion, as John Lightfoot has found it in the Talmud, and as the Jews continue to practice it to this day, it is evident that the rituals were indeed linked together in that fashion. Baptism is not generally required for the common people in the laws of Yahweh. And while among Christians for the longest time circumcision was dropped, baptism was maintained. Ostensibly, this is because Christians have failed to distinguish between the baptism of Christ and the baptism of John. John the Baptist himself had said that I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Reading from the King James Version. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 3 and in Luke chapter 3. And again in the Gospel of John, it is expressed by John the Baptist in a slightly different manner. In John chapter 1 verse 33. Then in the book of Acts. In chapter 1 we read. For John truly baptized with water. And these are the words attributed to Christ. But ye shall be baptized. With the Holy Ghost. Not many days since. Not many days hence. Not many days from now. But in spite of these statements. The apostles continued the water baptism ritual for those turning to Christ. Then, later, in Acts chapter 10, upon the preaching of the gospel by Peter at the home of the Roman centurion Cornelius, he noticed that the Holy Spirit descended on all those who had heard him, apart from and prior to any water baptism. Reflecting on that event a little later on, Peter is recorded as having said in Acts chapter 11, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he said that John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter was recalling the words of Christ recorded in Acts chapter 1, perhaps as many as seven or eight years later, judging by the events 
recorded in Acts chapters 11 and 12. In Acts chapter 12, we see the death of Herod Agrippa I, which is known to have been around 41 AD, if my memory serves me correctly. That would be about eight years after the crucifixion, according to the chronologies that we have at Christiania. This is when the apostles finally distinguished between the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ in Acts chapter 11. And from this point forward, water is not again mentioned in direct connection with their baptism. For example, when Apollos appears preaching in Corinth, we read in Acts chapter 18, that this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in the spirit. He spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard it, they took him unto them, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So it is admitted that the baptism of John is not the perfect way of God. The baptism of Christ is a different baptism, a baptism of the Spirit and not in water. It is the more perfect way. Personal cleanliness, of course, is important to man, but it does not bring men closer to God. The cleanliness of God is another matter, and much more important. Later, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, that there is one baptism, and in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul explained that Christ gave himself over on behalf of the body of his people, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The washing of water by the word is in the hearing of the gospel and the subsequent repentance from sin, not in the act of water baptism. Water baptism and the idea that man can justify himself in rituals should have been left behind in the first century. It is the work of the Judaizers that there remained any vestiges of such rituals in Christianity. As Christ himself told his disciples in John chapter 15, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. This is just one example of the many rituals promoted by the Judaizers, which lead men to self-righteousness rather than to the righteousness of God. The Judeans had supposed that any man could be baptized and be a proselyte. But Christ himself said that unless a man is born from above, he could not see the kingdom of heaven. As Paul had explained here, Titus was a pure child of the race according to the common belief. So he was apparently born from above, as only the children of Adam are the children of Yahweh God. To this there has always been opposition. So Paul continues and he says in verse 15 of Titus chapter 1, All things are clean to the clean, but to those defiled and faithless nothing is clean, 
but even their minds and consciences are defiled. Now Paul is not saying that everything is clean. And once again we must examine the context of the scripture and of his own letters in order to understand his statement. What is clean and unclean is determined by Yahweh God in his law and Paul had no authority to change that because God does not change. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul himself indicates that there are unclean people who are not to be considered clean and Christians are exhorted to come out from among them and be separated. Paul wrote that epistle only a short time after he wrote this epistle to Titus. And Titus was with him in Nicopolis when he said, Do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. And this is the Christogenian New Testament. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless? No mention of converting them. And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, just as Yahweh has said. I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them, and be separated, says the Prince, or the Lord. And do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. And I will be to you for a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the Almighty Prince. In Romans chapter 14, written at an even later time, Paul said that, I know and have confidence by Prince Joshua that nothing is of itself profane, except to he who considers anything to be profane, to him it is profane. There in that verse, the King James Version has unclean rather than profane. And this leads to the necessity for a greater investigation of what the Greek words translated as profane mean. As Esau was called a profane man by Paul on account of his race-mixing fornication. The word which the King James Version often translates as profane is bebelos. And according to Liddell and Scott, it describes something which is allowable to be trodden, permitted to human use. Paul used this word to describe Esau, where he also called him a fornicator in that same passage of Hebrews chapter 12. Ostensibly, Esau was considered bebelos because when he committed fornication, by race mixing, he departed from holiness, as the word for holy, hagios, denotes something separated and dedicated to God. Committing fornication, Esau forsook his birthright and made himself to be bebelos, profane. From the Septuagint, from Leviticus chapter 10, we read this commandment to the sons of Aaron, 
Ye shall not drink wine nor strong drink, thou and thy sons with thee, whensoever you enter into the tabernacle of witness, or when you approach the altar, so ye shall not die. It is a perpetual statute for your generations to distinguish between sacred and profane, and between clean and unclean, and to teach the children of Israel all the statutes which Yahweh spoke to them by Moses. In the Greek of that passage, holy and profane are the words hagios and bebelos, while clean and unclean are katharis and akatharis. As a digression, the Levites were permitted wine at other times. But here in Titus, Paul also admonishes that Christian elders must be sober in the fulfillment of their duties. There are two different words which the King James Version translates as unclean. One is coinous, and the other is akathartus. The word coinous is properly common, and such things were considered unclean because they were not properly treated according to the law. However, things which were coinous could be washed and sanctified on the altar. A person who is bebelous may choose to repent, as Paul indicates where he used the term again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. However, that was not the case with Esau. In the New Testament, the word akathartus was generally used to refer to things which are unclean according to the law of God and could therefore never be cleansed. But something which was considered common or coinous could indeed be cleansed. This distinction is often overlooked and therefore passages which refer to things such as profane, common, or unclean are often misunderstood and have even been mistranslated. Where Paul used the word unclean, or as we have it, profane, in Romans chapter 14, the Greek word is koinos, and therefore it refers to things which may be cleansed. But the unclean people of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, come out from among them, are akathartus, meaning that for some reason or other they cannot be cleansed. So Paul never indicates that they could somehow be converted. Contrary to the notions of the Jews, baptism could not help them. The Apostle Peter made this distinction in Acts chapter 10 where he said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. There, the word common is coinous, and the word unclean is akathartus. But Yahweh responded to him and said, What God has cleansed, thou shalt not call common. Notice that in the response, Things which are common are referred to, but not things which are unclean or akathartus. So one is obliged to examine what Yahweh had cleansed, and to do so honestly, we must inquire into the word of Yahweh. In Jeremiah chapter 33, the word of Yahweh says of the children of Israel, And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, 
from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Again, in Ezekiel chapter 37, Yahweh said likewise, where we read in part, I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. So they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So we read in Isaiah chapter 56, in a prophecy of Christ, that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The children of Israel were commanded to be holy, and without exception they made themselves profane and common in their sin. But they were promised the cleansing of the word of God. This cleansing is promised whether they themselves believe Jesus or not, as these promises are without exception. And Paul had written in Romans chapter 11 where he said, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, meaning they can't be taken back, from the time that Yahweh God first uttered them to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For as you in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, referring to the Israelites amongst the Judeans. Even so, have these also now not believed that your mercy, that through your mercy they may also obtain mercy? For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. In the end, it does not really matter how one believes, because what one believes is not of himself. It is Yahweh God who determines what each of us believes, as he reveals his purpose to man. This we read in Proverbs chapter 16. The preparations of the heart in man, and the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the spirits. Commit thy works unto Yahweh, and thy thoughts shall be established. So what matters more than what men believe is their works in relation to the treasure which they store up in heaven. But that is an issue apart from salvation itself. How we live our lives once we receive the gospel of Christ is related to our works and our reward, and the gospel can preserve our earthly lives when we hear it because we choose to keep God's law. But this is also an issue separate from eternal salvation. As Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10, that by the will of God we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Proverbs ask later in chapter 20, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Of course, all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. So where Paul says, all things are clean to the clean, he evidently refers to all things which are clean in the law of God and not in the eyes of man. Things which are unclean in the law of God should always be unclean in the estimation of man as they remain unclean to the Apostle Peter. God does not change in the same chapters of Isaiah. 
where he promised to take upon himself all of the sins of the children of Israel so that they would be cleansed, he nevertheless condemned those who purify themselves ostensibly with baptism rituals and who eat swine's flesh in Isaiah chapters 65 and 66. There the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah 66, For by fire and by his sword will Yahweh plead with all flesh, and the slain of Yahweh shall be many. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, saith Yahweh. Sounds kind of like a bunch of Chinese so-called Christians. They eat mice, right? And whatever the abomination is. I'm kidding. The things which are not unclean in the law, but which were only deemed profane or common, should not be considered unclean to man. Therefore, in Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Colossians chapter 2, and Hebrews chapter 13, we won't supply all of the citations this evening. Paul explained that men should not be bothered by food sacrificed to idols, as the idol was powerless and could not change the nature of the food itself. Of course, Paul was talking about food and the ordinances of man, and not about things which were pronounced unclean by the laws of God. In this manner, those things weren't food, right? Swine is not food. In this manner, Paul spoke to the Hebrews and said, Be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with foods or meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Hebrews 13.9 There he makes the example that the laws of the Judeans concerning, or the ordinances, I should call them, of the Judeans concerning the handling of food did not profit them in their standing with God. Then Paul says here, but to those defiled and faithless nothing is clean, but even their minds and consciences are defiled. As we often quote from Euripides, the bastard is always regarded as an enemy to the true-born. The word for defiled here is neither bebelos, nor coinus, nor akathartus. But rather it is from the term, it, it is from the Greek verb miahino, which is primarily to die or to stain, and then in that sense to defile or sully, and in a moral sense to taint or defile, according to Liddell and Scott. The word faithless in Titus 1.14 is from the Greek adjective apistus. And the translation is literal. However, there are Israelites without faith. And then there are those outside of the faith. Those for whom it is not meant. Who will always be, faith, be faithless. Since in the Christian disposition, 
In the Christian dispensation, it is not merely what the individual believes that matters, but rather it is what Abraham believed that matters. Since, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, that on account of Abraham, the promise is certain to all of the seed. What Abraham believed had mattered, and therefore even Rebekah knew that the wives of Esau, her own firstborn son, had disqualified him from the birthright. There are many sins by which the children of Israel had defiled themselves, and they were promised to be cleansed from them all. However, the one notable sin by which Esau had lost his inheritance and his chance for repentance is also described where many of the children of Israel were guilty of it in Hosea chapter 5, where it says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. Whoredom, that same word in the Hebrew version, fornication. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh, but they shall not find him, and he has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. In other words, those strange children would be devoured in a short time. But Yahweh had mercy on Israel, and promised to cleanse them in the nations of their captivity, as it says in Amos chapter 9. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Yahweh did not have such mercy on Esau, but as Paul explained in Romans chapter 9, he made Jacob a vessel for mercy, and Esau a vessel for destruction. As the Apostle John said in chapter 5 of his first epistle, that there is a sin unto death, I do not say that he shall pray for it. There is a sin which cannot be cleansed. And that is, ostensibly, the sin of being race mixed. There are scoffers who claim that being race mixed, being a mongrel, is not the fault of the individual and therefore the bastard should not suffer for it. But in chapter 2 of the Revelation, when the fornicator, Jezebel, is portrayed as having refused to repent, and Yahshua said that he would throw her and those who commit fornication with her onto a bed, and in the great tribulation, and that he would kill their children with death. He did not say that he would kill the sinners, but rather that he would destroy the product of their sins. In Jeremiah chapter 2, there are three references to race mixing among the children of Israel, where we read first in verse 13, For my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Then a little further on, the word of Yahweh says, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, 
wholly a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? And then in the next verse, in verse 22, we read, For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. How can how can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Baleen. That word polluted in the Septuagint is the same word which we see here. Miahino. There are broken cisterns which cannot be put back together again. There are plants which Yahweh did not plant which must therefore be rooted up. Strange slips. And there is a sin that cannot be cleansed. All of these are allegories for race mixing. So where Paul mentions those who are faithless, he may be referring to the sinful state of Israelites apart from Christ, but where he mentions those who are stained or defiled, he certainly seems to be referring to the bastard Edomites and other Canaanites among the Judeans. They were also among the Greeks. Those who are defiled will forever judge the world by their own defiled spirits and dispute whether anyone or anything can really be clean because they can only see the world through their own defiled eyes. Those who have the Spirit of God put faith, put their faith in God and not in the ritual cleansings and the works of the law which were promoted among early Christians by the Jews. Thus we read in Mark chapter 7, And the Pharisees and some of the scribes, having come from Jerusalem, gathered together to him, and seeing some of his students, that with profane coyness, profane hands, that is, unwashed, they eat bread, for the Pharisees and all the Judeans, if they do not wash the hands to the elbow, they do not eat, holding to the tradition of the elders. And from the marketplace, if they do not rinse, meaning rinse the food, they do not eat. And there are many other things which they undertook to do, to hold to, washings of cups and pitchers and pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes questioned him, For what reason do your students not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but with profane hands they eat bread? And Christ then chastised them for this attitude. Where it refers to washings of pots, it's not that people shouldn't clean their pots, but we see, I believe it's in John chapter 1 at the wedding supper, a reference to wine vessels which were washed after the manner of the Judeans. The washings of pots and utensils was done in a ritualistic manner. And if it weren't, if the pots and other vessels weren't washed in a certain way, then the Judeans wouldn't use them. Which is absolutely silly. It, It boils down to man thinking that he could really control his own environment and thinking that these ritual cleansings and man's willingness or or man's uh, 
assertion or arrogance that he thinks that he could control nature, right? Man's assertion that he could control his own environment to that extent without having any faith in God. And imposing those ideas through legislation on other men. We get it all the time in our own legislation today. The Judaizers are still here. And and they're a lot more sophisticated. We get it all the time today. If they didn't wash their cups, pots, bowls in a certain way, through a certain ritualistic process, they wouldn't use them. They were no good. The Judaizers neglect the laws of God. And then they would take people that could never be cleansed in the eyes of God and profess for them to be converted by cleansing them in water. Where in the law or the gospel does it say that men must be baptized in conjunction with the belief in Christ or else be damned? In Mark chapter 16 verse 16 and the last 11 verses of the gospel of Mark were added by Judaizers in the 5th century AD. They're not the originals. Two other manufactured endings for the gospel of Mark also began appearing in certain manuscripts around that same time. We would not discourage men from coming to Christ, but rather we only seek to encourage men to seek the righteousness of God and not the approval of men. It is the cleanliness of God which men, which the men whom he has approved should seek after, and not the approval given in the pronouncements of men. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For not he that commends himself is approved, but he whom the Lord commands. The Judaizers would care more about cleansing cups and bowls and hands before they eat, while neglecting the much more serious sins they have committed by soiling the body of Christ with bastards. Then as soon as a pure child, according to the common belief, exhorts men to follow the laws of God in reference to what is clean and what is unclean, the same Judaizers accuse him of being unclean. The pattern of justifying sin in this manner is evidently as old as the devil himself. To the unclean nothing is clean so that he can pretend to hide in his sin. To the Jew no race is pure so that they can make bastards of all men because they themselves are bastards. So Paul continues. They profess to know Yahweh but in deeds they deny being abominable and disobedient and rejected for all good works. As Christ had said in response to those who accused his disciples of eating with unwashed hands, in the subsequent verses of the passage which we have already cited from Mark chapter 7, he answered and said unto them, Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, as the washings of pots and cups, and many other such things like you do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. These men which Paul describes as tainted and without the faith 
deny Yahweh in their actions, no matter what they profess with their lips. Furthermore, Paul did not say that they themselves rejected good works. Rather, Paul said they themselves were rejected for good works, indicating that Yahweh God never wanted the Judaizers who were defiled and without the faith in the first place. Paul is still referring to the Judaizers here among the Cretans, and this, and with this it is evident that Paul is warning Titus that it does not matter what the Cretans profess with their lips, but only how they actually conduct themselves in the course of their lives. The Cretans, being liars, could not be trusted to be telling the truth by professing Yahshua Christ, but only by whether they followed him by seeking to live in true piety in the cleanliness of God. Now we shall commence... with Titus chapter 2. Now you speak things which are suitable to sound doctrine. Paul continues to exhort Titus to settle the apparent problems in Crete, and it is not that Titus does not know these things. Rather, Paul seems to be reminding him in order to encourage him to preach them to the Cretans reinforcing basic doctrines with the hopes of resolving whatever troubles they were having. Having done this, Paul has unwittingly left us a record by which we may understand what behavior the apostles expected of both leaders and members of a Christian community. And it is nothing like the Roman Catholic Church, that's for certain. He continues by saying, Elders are to be sober, reverent, discreet, sound in the faith, in love, in patience. The Greek word, Nathalius, Strong's number 3524, literally means unmixed with wine, or wineless, and therefore speaking of persons, sober, according to Liddell and Scott. However, Paul was not demanding complete abstention from wine. Rather, he had, at nearly the same time, because the first epistle to Timothy was written right around this same time, instructed Timothy to use a little wine for sake of his stomach and other ailments which beset him. Secular Greek writers such as Strabo of Cappadocia spoke of the medicinal qualities of wine in that same regard. In an exhortation which corresponds to this one, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul encourages that elders or bishops be not given to wine, and deacons or ministers be not given to much wine. Paul is not suggesting that men in different capacities be held to different standards, but rather he is speaking in generalities so as to communicate the ideal. A little wine is not a sin, but the drunkenness and profligacy that accompany much wine are indeed sinful. The apostles and Christ himself had wine at their table and very likely drank at least a little wine with most of their meals, as was the ancient custom that is readily evident in many passages of Scripture. 
The word for reverend here is semnos, which, when used to Ben, means reverend, august, solemn, stately, or majestic. According to Liddell and Scott, think of your great-grandfather on a Sunday, the way men used to act. The word temperate here is sophron, which was used in two ways, meaning to be of sound mind, sensible, discreet, or wise, or, as we have reflected here, having control over the sensual desires, temperate, self-controlled, moderate, chaste, or sober. The phrase sound in the faith may have been translated as healthy in the faith, as a Christian should be studied in the knowledge of Scripture. Paul made a distinction between those who deny Christ and those who merely lack belief in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where he wrote, speaking of Christ, that if we suffer, meaning if we suffer together with Christ, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Reading roughly from the King James Version. I skipped a few words in italics. In this day and age, and especially since Satan, the international Jew, has deceived the whole world, even those who deny Christ are not really denying the Christ of the Scriptures, since they have never been properly taught of the Christ of the Scriptures. In reality, they are denying an idol which has been set up by the enemies of Christ and worshipped the world over. A hippie flower child Jesus who loves everyone and tells men to let their enemies destroy them. But where Paul said of Christ in 2 Timothy that if we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. He means that Christ will keep his promises even when men do not believe the gospel. So all of Israel shall indeed be saved. And that's the second witness here to that concept this evening. To accept the gospel and to act on that acceptance in this life is a wonderful blessing. And there should certainly be blessings for that from God. But as Paul also said in his epistles to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. They are the people that repent in this life. And some men they follow after. That indicates that some men will not repent in this life, but that they will have an opportunity to repent later. Otherwise, what is the purpose of such a judgment? Paul continues with an exhortation concerning women. Elder women, in like manner, in a condition befitting sanctity, not slanderous, not enslaved to much wine, 
teachers of virtue, in order that they may admonish the young women to be lovers of husband, lovers of children, discreet, pure, good homemakers, being subject to their own husband, in order that the word of Yahweh is not blasphemed. And some manuscripts have, in order that the word of Yahweh and the teaching is not blasphemed, for which we may compare 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 1. First note that women are charged with the education of young women. There were no public schools in the first century. Young men were with their fathers, or put off to learn a trade. And young women were at home with their mothers until they were married. The word for sanctity in this instance is from the Greek word hieroprepes. This is a compounded word from hieros, which means divine or wonderful, but which was also used to refer to things sacred to the gods, and prepo, which means to be clearly seen or conspicuous, or in certain contexts to be like or resemble. So Christian women should keep their appearance in a condition which is worthy of God. The word translated as slanderous here, and that doesn't really mean to dress up like a bimbo. That means to be modest, as Paul describes later in his first epistle to Timothy, where he goes into more detail, and we'll save it for that. The word translated as slanderous here is from the Greek word diabolus, an adjective used to mean slanderous or backbiting. It commonly appears in the scriptures as a substantive, meaning that it is used as a noun, and it is translated as devil, or as false accuser in the Christogenian New Testament. It may have been translated as slanderer. In ancient Greece, the verb ballo simply meant to throw. We get our word ball from that. But ballus, the adjective, was used to signify the cast of a net. I'm sorry, that might be a noun. So a diabolus is one who attempts to trap a man by casting false accusations. Casting a net to trap him in. And that's basically what slander is. Again, we see an exhortation that women not be given to much wine. They were certainly permitted to drink some wine, but drunkenness is not a condition befitting sanctity. The word oikuros, from oikos, which means house, and the word ergos, which means work. Oikuros is translated here as homemaker, the word literally means homeworker. According to Liddell and Scott, in other contexts, the word was used of watchdogs, or contemptuously of men who refused to go off to war. It is a watching or keeping the house, or refers to keeping at home, mistress of the house, or housekeeper, because it was used of wives. This has been the traditional role of women, and it is a vital role for women to fulfill, 
in the maintenance of strong Christian communities. For that reason, Paul says that women must be subject to their own husband in order that the word of Yahweh is not blasphemed. To which we... I'm sorry, I'm trying to repeat myself. Women should be subject to their husbands, not necessarily for their husband's sake, but for their own sake and for respect of Yahweh their God. The Apostle Peter spoke of this same thing in chapter 3 of his first epistle, where he said, Likewise, the wives, being subject to their own husbands, in order that, if some then disobey the word, through the conduct of the wives they shall have advantage without the word, observing in fear your pure conduct, of which the dress must not be outward with braids of hair and applications of gold or putting on of garments, but the hidden man of the heart, with the incorruptibility of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious before God. For thusly at one time also the holy women, who have hope in Yahweh and dress themselves, being subject to their own husbands, as Sarah had obeyed Abraham, calling him Master, whose children you have been born to do good and not fearing any terror. And Paul explained this same thing in reference to a woman's dress in his first epistle to Timothy, but in reference to a woman's behavior in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that pious women can help bring their wayward husbands to repentance through their own good conduct. So the woman is the pillar of the household. And in our feminist society, where men have failed to be men, so women have tried to be men, and children grow up all confused, things only get progressively worse. In the first sin of man, Adam failed to keep his wife subject, and for that reason Yahweh said to Eve, that thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. But that was not necessarily her punishment, rather Yahweh was restoring restoring her to her proper place in his creation. When we all fulfill our proper place in his creation, we'll have the kingdom of heaven or it will at least begin to materialize. In verse 6, Paul says, In like manner, encourage the young men to have discretion. And this word for discretion is sophron, which we discussed in verse 2, where we translated it as temperance. This is all that Paul says here concerning young men, except that now he exhorts Titus as to, as to how he should conduct himself among them, because he would certainly be a role model to the young men. Concerning all things, presenting yourself as a model of good works, incorrupt in the teaching, reverence, sound speech not condemnable, that one of the opposition would have respect, having nothing petty to say concerning us. One papyrus, which is esteemed to date to about 200 A.D., 
Papyrus 32, has without envy in the teaching, rather than incorrupt in the teaching. It has aphthania rather than aphthoria, which is a difference of one letter. The majority text interpolates another word which may mean incorruption at the end of verse 7, which is aphthasia, and translated, it, it was translated in the KJV as sincerity in order to avoid the obvious redundancy. Neither the papyrus P32 or any of the ancient codices cited here have the additional word. In verse 8, where we have that one of the opposition would have respect, the King James Version has that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed. The difference is in our treatment of the Greek word entrepo, for which we have been criticized. For this same word, the King James Version has to be ashamed at 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and at Titus chapter 2 verse 8. But the King James Version translates this word as to revere or reverence in Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 20, and Hebrews chapter 12. And to regard in Luke chapter 18 in two different verses. Under their definition of entrepo, Liddell and Scott have to feel shame or fear, citing only the New Testament. Yet, according to Liddell and Scott, the general meaning, the primary meaning of the word, is to turn about, linger, hesitate, to turn towards, to give heed to, to pay regard to, to respect or reverence. So the people who criticize us for our translation here are just stuck on stupid. We cannot agree that antrepo should mean to shame here, as the enemies of God have often been characterized by their own lack of shame. Rather, they would be forced to respect you publicly if you give them no cause for accusing you publicly. Now Paul speaks concerning slaves or bondmen. Bondmen are to be subject to their own masters in all things, to be well-pleasing, not gainsaying, not pilfering, but displaying trustworthiness in order that they would honor the teaching of Yahweh our Savior in all things. The word for bondmen here is the plural of doulis, which in classical Greek was properly a born bondman or slave, opposed to one who was made a slave during the time of his own life. Christianity, as well as the Old Testament law, understood that men may become slaves in certain circumstances, even as a matter of birth, if their fathers were slaves, and did not require even Christian slave owners to relinquish their property rights. Slavery was a fact of life in the ancient world, and it is still with us today, even if it is frequently and rather misleadingly called employment. The word for honor in verse 10 
is from the Greek verb kosmeo, which is properly to order or arrange, but also, according to Liddell and Scott, to honor or pay honor to. And so it is here in this context. The King James Version has adorn, and the verb also bears that meaning. For that reason, we consider the derivative word cosmos to be the society, as the adornment of the oikumene, which is the physical dwelling place of man. In reference to the lowly state of slaves, Paul continues, and he says, For the delivering favor of Yahweh has been displayed to all men, teaching us that rejecting impiety and the lusts of this society, cosmos, discreetly and righteously and piously we should live in this present age, expecting the blessed hope and manifestation of the honor of the great Yahweh, even our Savior, Yahshua Christ who gave himself over in behalf of us in order that he would redeem us from all lawlessness and may purify for himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You speak these things and exhort and prove with all authority. Let no one hold you in contempt. And of course, the authority by which to prove these things is Scripture. The Greek word periousios is peculiar only here, is peculiar, is translated as peculiar, only here in the New Testament. A similar meaning was expressed at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 using a different term. However, the same word periousios appears in the Septuagint at Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, and chapter 23, verse 22, which is not found in the King James Version, that particular verse, Deuteronomy chapter 7, chapter 14, and chapter 26, in the corresponding King James Version passages taken from the Masoretic Hebrew texts, the meaning is the same. There should be no doubt that, as it was in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, so it is in 1 Peter and here in Titus that the phrase, or this particular word, is used exclusively of the genetic offspring of the original true Israelites. The Apostle Peter told his Christian readers in the provinces of Anatolia, But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light, who at one time were not a people, but now are the people of Yahweh, those who have not been shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. The last statement is the citation, the last statement made there by Peter, is a citation of the prophet Hosea, where it was prophesied that, the, that where the children of Israel were renounced by God, not being shown mercy, and being called by him, not my people, that those very same children of Israel would one day be called his people once again, and would be shown mercy. Nobody else can claim a role in the prophecy. Therefore, 
nobody else can claim to be his people. While there are many other aspects of this passage that may be discussed, here we see once again that the children of Israel are redeemed from all lawlessness, and that it is Yahweh who endeavors to purify them for himself. They can't cleanse themselves. Yahweh God cleanses them for himself. Paul is exhorting Titus to this understanding so that he may confront the Judaizers in Crete, those who imagine themselves to be the purifiers of men through their rituals. For that Paul tells them, let no one hold you in contempt. Because men are not cleansed through rituals, but the children of Israel are promised to adorn the cleanliness of God. Yahweh willing, we will discuss some of those other aspects of this passage when we resume our presentation of Titus. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.